So starting from verse 1 of Psalm 7. Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Lord my God, if I've done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I've repaid my ally with evil or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample me like trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Arise, Lord, in your anger, rise up against the, ra- the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts, my shield is God Most High, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword, he will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons, he makes ready his flaming arrows. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. That's the word of the Lord. and uh, praise, the, praise the Lord that Rob's going to explain that to us now. I'm glad it's not me doing it. So uh, I'm going to bless Rob as he comes up. We'll just pray for him as he comes up. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for Rob. Thank you for the gift you've given him in explaining your word. I just pray today that uh, you'll give us full understanding of what Rob's saying and that Rob's words could be your words. Uh, you can speak directly to us through this psalm. In your loving name, Lord. Amen. Thank you. I almost feel as if I owe you an apology. And the apology is the fact that we've not had very summertime themes over the last three psalms. Psalm 5 was all about God's wrath and anger and judgment. Psalm 6 was all about repentance and tears. And Psalm 7 doesn't get much lighter. (laughs) But I promise you next week it all comes right. Psalm 8 is a wonderful psalm of praise with very little darkness at all. Shigion, what on earth is that? Well, we the answer is we don't really know. Um, it appears to be some kind of musical term. It appears to be some kind of term that applies to music that goes up and down or wanders around a little bit. Some say it applies to uh, a, a, a psalm that is about a number of different themes all mixed up into one. We're not quite sure, but I don't think it's all that important, to be frank. A little more intriguing is the mention of a person who's called Cush the Benjamite. And once again, there's some concern about who is this person, or what is this thing? Cush is a bit of an African name, in fact. But this appears to be a person who's a a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And in fact, if we look a little bit closer than this, it gives us a little bit of background as to when and where David is during the course of writing this particular psalm. You'll remember that from Psalm 3 right through to Psalm 6, 
he's hiding from his enemies. And at that stage, his enemy is his own son Absalom, who is turning the kingdom against him and is chasing him into the hills. But this psalm appears to be something a little bit different. If you read back in 1 Samuel in chapter 22, you find that David on this occasion has run away, but this time not from Absalom. This is much earlier. He's run away from King Saul. Saul is trying to kill David out of jealousy. And so you find in uh, 1 Samuel 22 verse 6, David is hiding in in the caves of Adullam. And it says this, Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah, with all his officials seated by his side. And Saul begins to address them. And he says, Listen to me, men of Benjamin. Listen to me, men of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse, that's David, will he give you all fields and, and, and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? In other words, he's saying, is David going to promise you all of this? Is that why you've all conspired against me? And what he's trying to do is to convince them, the tribe of Benjamin, Cush and the others, that he's a far better bet than David is. David is nothing but a no-good rebel. And he wants them to spy on David. He wants them to help him to track David down, get a hold of him, and have him killed. So it appears this man, Cush, is a member of this tribe of Benjamin that is now allied to Saul, and he's determined to find David and bring him to justice. We'll come back to him in just a moment. The overall theme of the psalm seems to be God's vindication of David and God's judgment, again, as we've seen before, on his enemies. And in fact, this, this psalm looks at the word judgment from four different angles. And if you look at the first two verses, what it appears to say is this. It says that other people will sometimes judge us unfairly. Other people will sometimes judge us unfairly. We've all been, we've all been victim of that, haven't we? Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. So it appears that this Cush the Benjamite has been telling Saul all sorts of lies about David. Point, painting a picture of him as a, as a dangerous and deceitful traitor. And Saul intensifies his manhunt as a result of all of this. And David has to flee physically from the kingdom. But essentially David remembers this and it's so important David says in the beginning of the psalm, Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Remember that David once tended his flocks. David once had to fight off lions himself. Way back in the early days before he was even called. So he knows what it's like to be a victim. But this time, he's the one who's being chased. He's the one who feels as if there's a lion at his door about to attack him. So we find in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 25, David running from Saul. And sometimes he refers to himself even as a dead dog. Can you imagine referring yourself to a dead dog? That's how depressed he feels. He even calls himself a flea and a, and a bird that is being hunted. So he's in a terrible state. But remember, David is being falsely accused. 
And the only place you can go for protection, just as we, when we are falsely accused, there's only one place we go for protection. My God is my refuge. There's no one else he can appeal to. And I thought, well, well, so what? What's this got to do with us today? I think we as Christians, as twice-born believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, will from time to time find ourselves misunderstood, misrepresented, and most painfully sometimes even slandered and wrongly accused. In the extreme, we have some of the accusations that are made against us and what we believe by the spokesman for the accusers, Richard Dawkins, in his, his work as the evangelist of atheism in the world today, Professor Dawkins, who at least I think is brave enough to come out and say what many other people are thinking. And if you're a person of faith, faith in Christ, faith in God, listen to what he says about you. He says, faith is the greatest cop-out the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Faith can be very, very dangerous. Listen to this carefully. And deliberately to implant faith into the vulnerable mind of an innocent child is a grievous wrong. He goes on to say later that teaching a child about faith is the most evil form of child abuse. How does it feel to be accused of child abuse when you take your child to Sunday school? When you read the Bible stories to your child around the table? That's the accusation that comes, not just from Richard Dawkins, but from others. He goes on to say the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. How does it feel to have your God accused of these things? Most people accuse God of, of lesser things than that by simply not believing in him. And he goes on to make accusations against us who believe the Bible and other such things. And it goes on and on and on. So what is the Christian response to all of this? For those who can, they enter into debate with people like Professor Dawkins. And you can, you can see those debates on YouTube, and they're very interesting. He hasn't won yet uh, a single one against a, a, a really good Christian scholar. And nowadays he doesn't even talk to them. But what can we do? If we're accused of such things, if we're misunderstood and misrepresented in some way, maybe not as severely as, as Dawkins would, would do, we can't all debate. So what can we do? Well, one of the things I think we can do is study. We're going to be talking in the first week of September before the series and Joshua starts about how can we get the most out of the Bible? How can we study the Bible so that we can equip ourselves more effectively to meet the arguments that come our way? Peter is writing and he says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect. So I think we do. We need to study. We need to find the answers to some of these difficult questions. But I think most importantly, we need to realize that God is our refuge. 
as David does. God is our refuge. And when we don't have all the answers, and we never will, when we feel out of our depth, God is our refuge. My Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. So you say, well, Rob, what on earth are you on about? This never happens to me. I've, I've never had to really explain myself to anybody. I've never been accused of being out of step with reality. My allegiance to Jesus Christ has never really been questioned. I never get into these kind of debates. And I say to you, well, that's terrific. I, I really mean that. That's, that's wonderful. And keep on living your life the way, the way God wants you to live your life. That's terrific. Keep preaching. Keep, keep living that way. But remember this, that sometimes, 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 when we find the road of our Christian faith so easily, so easy and so, so rarely questioned or so rarely mocked, sometimes we might need to look very carefully at how we are living and speaking our faith. Because a watered-down message and a lifestyle that largely mimics the way of the world is never going to be questioned. And I have to ask myself the question, especially when I'm working and and dealing with, with people of no faith or other faiths, I have to keep asking myself, am I really living and speaking as God would have me do? You see, it's sometimes the case, sometimes, that Christians lose more friends than they make. Their faith becomes a stumbling block and foolishness to the non-believer. Popularity was never one of the gifts of the Spirit. Sometimes, and in some cases, isolation can be the result of living a faithful Christian life. So, the first view we have of judgment is sometimes we are judged unfairly, misrepresented. The second part, verses 3 to 5, says this. We need to judge ourselves honestly. Look what David says here. Lord, my God, if I have done this, and there is guilt on my hands, and if I have repaid my ally with evil and, and without cause robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. We need to judge ourselves honestly. So what do we find here? We find the psalmist affirming his own integrity before God. And more than this, he's asking God to vindicate him. Because he knows that as far as these accusations that are being leveled him by Cush the Benjamite and all of the others, they're not true. Guilt, uh, David is not an innocent man. By any means, David has done all sorts of things. But at this point in life, he's not guilty of what he's being accused of doing. When it comes to repenting, nobody does it better than David. Really. If you, want to, if you, if you feel ever at a time when you, you have a heavy burden of wanting to repent, and you feel terribly sorry for what you've done, then pick up Psalm 51 and see how David expresses his repentance after that terrible sin with Bathsheba, which comes later in his life. And I just a couple of verses. This is one of the most remarkable pieces of, of David's writing. When he, he bears his soul before God, he knows how to repent. And he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done. 
what is evil in your sight. There's no more expressive words of repentance than those of David's. And use that psalm sometimes when you feel as if you really need to come to the Lord and confess. On the odd occasion, I've been known to express my own concerns about what is sometimes called contemporary Christianity. I still worry a little bit about that term. And one of the things that in the many uh, pieces of literature that I read, the many websites I I look at, the many emails I get from contemporary Christianity organizations, one of the things that worries me is that in so much of this literature, there seems to be a very, very small emphasis indeed, sometimes a complete absence of the need for repentance and confession. And even the word sin seems to be downplayed. Lots and lots about heaven and about love. Not so much about the other side. And I believe this is one area in which I hope I'm sincerely, sincerely, sincerely hope I'm wrong. I, I, I really do. And that the practitioners of contemporary Christianity will not pick and choose only the nice bits and leave out the other bits about repentance and confession and sin. It would be disastrous. But here we have David, and he's not repenting. He's pleading for vindication. He's not sorry for a sin he hasn't committed. He's being wrongly accused of treason, and he's claiming that his motives are blameless. So he says, if I have done this, and if there's any guilt, and if I've repaid my my ally with evil, and if without cause I have robbed my foe, if these things are true, then Lord, punish me. Let them pursue me. Let them trample me into the ground. He accepts he would deserve such punishment but the accusations are false. And this is very important because there are two occasions very close to this period of time, in 1 Samuel 24 and 25, when David is given the actual opportunity to kill King Saul. Right there. He could have done it with a blow of the sword. But he doesn't do it. He steps back. Knowing that this man is, taking to, is seeking to take his life, he steps away from it. He doesn't commit that sin of regicide. And it proves that his heart is not filled with a sense of personal malice or a desire for revenge. Once again, so what? What does this mean for us? Well, I believe it's equally important that we are honest and open with our Lord and with ourselves. We're guilty but forgiven sinners. We are not in day-to-day practice perfect, but we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. God's eyes were justified. We made perfect through the obedience to death of our Lord Jesus. And when we first came to Christ those years ago, for me it was when I was a, a teenager, 13 years of age, I repented of my sin, confessed my sin, and I turned away from the old life. It doesn't mean I don't still drift back into it from time to time. Anyone who knows me knows that I do. But he forgave me. We admit to no ability in ourselves to save ourselves or even to live the Christian life. It's all by grace. We don't need to repent of sins we've not committed. We don't need to confess things that that others say about us that are untrue. But we do need every day to confess our own sins to him. Our failures and our shortcomings. Forgiveness is given and it's given every day but it does follow repentance. So, the first half of the psalm. Others will judge us unfairly. We need to judge ourselves 
honestly. The next large section of the psalm, verses 6 to 13, now I'm not going to spend too much time on it because it deals with a theme we've already dealt with. And that is that God judges sinners righteously. So have look on, on, on page 545, verses 6 to 13. I'm not going to read through all of those verses again. But there you will see this theme coming again. We saw it in, verse, in Psalm 5. We dealt with it in some depth. We saw it again in Psalm 6. And we spoke at some length about this terrible doctrine of God's wrath and God's anger and his judgment of sin and sinners. And I don't want to go over that ground again, but I do want to make one or two comments. David here is demanding justice. He's demanding vindication, but he's not going to take things into his own hand. He could have. He could have killed Saul on two occasions, but he doesn't. We see him turning Saul and turning Cush and the others. He turns them over to God and says, God, you show your justice. You do what is right. He says, arise, O Lord. Just like Moses does when the Israelites are about to to lead with the Ark of the Covenant. Arise, Lord, may your enemies be scattered. David is fully aware of the always pending danger to his life. And he wants to see the Lord move into action. So he says, Lord, do this. Not so much for me, just do it because you're righteous and you're just. And isn't isn't it true? Tell me if you have experiences like I do, that sometimes when we feel ourselves in severe distress, that there are times, if we're honest, that God seems pretty distant. There are times when we feel in those deep, dark times that everything is against us, that God doesn't always feel as close as we'd like him to be. Let's be honest about that. We've all had that experience. And when God seems to be so distant, of course he isn't, We want him to act, and we want him to act now, when we want him to act demonstrably. We want to do something. But God is more long-suffering than that. God is more patient. He sees the bigger picture. He knows the end from the beginning. As hard as it seems, we must leave that to him. David's finding it hard to do, in a sense. My translation of what David is saying here is something like this. Lord, convene the court right now. Seat yourself on the judge's bench right now. Call all the witnesses to see your pronouncement. Let me, see, let me be seen to be innocent and let the guilty not escape their punishment. Do it now, Lord. Little does David know that God is doing that. But it's not going to be exactly the way he thinks it's going to be. It's going to happen, though. On a final and terrible day, that will, be, that will happen. And it may not come soon enough for David, and it probably doesn't seem to be coming soon enough for us sometimes, but it is coming. God, in his righteousness, in his justice, in his holy anger, will judge And no one will escape that day. Sentences will be fair. Sentences will be carried out to the letter. The time for appeals and retrials will be over. And reasonable doubt will no longer be the issue. Because justice will be done. 
And at this point in verse 10, David uses a title for God that is quite unusual for David. He doesn't use it that often, although it does appear in the psalm some 20 times. He calls him God Most High, El Elyon, God Most High. And that's an interesting title because it's the title that the angel uses when he comes to Mary, that that shocked out of her skin little teenage girl when she gets told she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And the angel says, he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of El Elyon. Because on that day, God's going to take from Jesus his swaddling baby clothes. He's going to take from him the blood-stained garments of his, of his crucifixion. He's going to take from him the, the, the stained garments of the burial. He's going to hand to him a robe and say, you be judged now. You judge. And the Son of the Most High will take up that position and he will administer God's justice. And that's the way it should be. And that should be a huge comfort to us. Not that sinners are going to get judged. That's never a comfort to anybody but that God is going to be righteous. God is going to be seen to do his will. A day not to be missed. I was thinking about it just last night as I was going over this. Am I true in, right in saying that the great judgment day will be the only time in all of history when every single man, woman, and child who's ever lived will be together in one place at one time. Nobody escapes. We'll be there, but we're on the right side of the throne. Bless him. Hallelujah for that. So God will, God will, that's the message, God will judge sinners righteously. But finally, very quickly, verses 14 to 17, sin itself judges Sinners, ultimately. Sin itself, in a sense, judges sinners, ultimately. Some strange verses. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down to their own heads. Odd verses. There's a strange analogy about sin and pregnancy here. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. But it's not the only place in the Bible that analogy is used. In Job chapter 15, verse 35, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. The womb fashions deceit. I want you to know, ladies, we're not picking on you here. Because interestingly enough, the, 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 the gender that is used here is male and not female. This is about male pregnancy. <laughs> so you're, out, well, you're not out of it, but it's not specifically about you, ladies. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 4. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. And it's not just in the Old Testament. James says this in James chapter 1, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Listen to this. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Staggering statement. It seems that as sinners with sinful natures, inherited all the way from our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, we conceive sin. And that in time, like some monstrous creature born within us, the sin grows up and destroys us. It's not a pretty picture. Not a pretty picture at all. And the second analogy kind of says the same thing. Whoever digs a hole, scoops it out, falls into the same hole. And it's summed up in verse uh, 16. The trouble they caused recoils on them. It's not a pretty picture. But let me tell you something. If the Bible is true and accurate about anything at all, the Bible is true and accurate about human nature. It's not a popular concept. We all sin and we all have our excuses for sin. It's very rarely our fault, of course, and there's always someone else to blame. But the Bible clearly teaches that most, but not all, most of the troubles we face are the product of our own shortcomings. And David knew this. He would one day remember the the, the words of the prophet Nathan who would say to him, David, you've sinned and the sword will never leave your house. We've talked about that. So there is a sense in which sin performs its own act of judgment upon us. And therefore there's no excuse. And I close. We see God abandoning the evil King Saul to his own ways. Saul's sin will judge him, as you will see. 1 Samuel chapter 15 Saul is confronted by the great prophet Samuel. And Saul claims to have followed everything God wanted him to do. Now, God said to Samuel on one occasion, Samuel, I want you to tell Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites and wipe them out. They're getting in the way. And Saul Saul is now visited by Samuel, and and Saul saying, oh, I've done it. It's all sorted. Everything's taken care of. They've all been wiped out, and 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 we've killed all their livestock. And Samuel says this, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? You see, Saul had not followed God's instructions. He'd not destroyed the Amalekites. He'd not destroyed their livestock. He'd taken them in as allies. And he'd simply confiscated their livestock and made it his own. And again and again and again, Saul says, But I did obey the Lord. I did obey the Lord. He says it three times at least. And Saul went on to disobey God and to put David to the sword. But listen to what happens to Saul himself. This great, once great king in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 31. Saul and his people are losing badly to the Philistines. Those Philistines kept getting in the way. You remember the Philistines? They kept getting in the way and they get in the way again. God uses them as an instrument of judgment. And it says there, the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed Saul's sons. And then the fighting grew fierce around Saul, and the archers overtook him and wounded him severely. So he shot with an arrow. And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through. 
but the armor bearer was terrified and would not do so. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And the next day the Philistines found the body of Saul and they cut off his head and stripped him of his armor. Surely one of the most graphic pictures of the truth. Be sure your sins will find you out. And David has confidence in this. He remembers how Pharaoh commanded the firstborn of all male Jewish relatives to be thrown into the river Nile and drowned. And then saw his own army destroyed as the Red Sea collapsed over them. And again and again and again the message is clear. I just like the way David ends the psalm. I will give thanks. It's an explosion of praise. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High, El Elyon. And the fact that people are ensnared by their own sins and ultimately judged should bring no joy to our hearts. But what brings us great joy is that God will be glorified. God in his righteousness will be exalted. And on this holiday Sunday morning, even though we've had to examine some of the sadder and more serious parts of Scripture, we rejoice in this. We really do. That all of us, in our sinfulness and in our rebellion, have this wonderful forgiveness that he brings. And I leave this with you. In your day-to-day living, in your day-to-day going about your work in the grace of God as he lifts you up and turns you into the person that he wants you to be. When you do fall away, when you do slip, when you do slide, and we've done that, all of us. We used to call it backsliding. Do you remember that? Backsliding, what a word that is. (laughs) There's always a way back. And if there's somebody here this morning, and I extend this invitation, if there's someone here this morning, and I don't know, maybe you've, you've not had that opportunity to come to Christ and for the very first time put your sin aside and say, Lord, take it from me. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I want to be your child. Then you can do that. Because Paul, when he writes to the, to the Corinthian church, says this. He says, says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But, but, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And he will forgive us our sins. And he will purify us from all unrighteousness. I read in Proverbs just last night, I'm plowing through that book, Nick. I know that you'd like to preach on it one day. Boy, I tell you, I would... (laughs) And I came across that verse in 14, verse 12. It's again in chapter 15, verse 35. It seems to be the key verse, in fact, of the book of Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but the end of that way is death. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, not the preacher's word, your word. Take your word and apply it to our hearts. And Lord, my prayer is that if there's anyone here today who needs to take that very first step, turning to Christ, young or old, 
they might today take the courage to say, I leave that sinful life behind and I, I turn and I confess my sin and I accept Christ's forgiveness and I step out in faith, believing that he will give me new life. And Lord, I pray too for anyone here today who's battling with sin, feels they have slid back just a wee bit and they want to get further ahead in their Christian life, then dear Lord, speak to them through your word. Help them to know that a a moment of confession and repentance will bring your full forgiveness into play, your full and great grace. Speak to us in this way, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.